And first, a quick word from our podcast sponsor. FactSet delivers superior data, analytics, and flexible technology to help more than 170,000 users see and seize opportunities sooner. For over 40 years, we have given investment professionals the edge to outperform with informed insights, workflow solutions across the portfolio lifecycle, and industry-leading support from dedicated specialists. Through market changes and technological progress, we're proud to have been recognized with multiple awards for our analytical and data-driven solutions, while staying connected to our clients and each other. Learn more at www.factset.com. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us on The Sustainability Story. I'm Matt Orsog with CFA Institute, and our guest today is Olivia Knight, Racial Justice Initiative Manager at As You Sow. Hi. Good to talk to you, Olivia. Thanks so much for having me. Well, before we get into the discussion of what we're going to talk about, give us a little bit about your background, how you got where you are now, and a little bit about what As You Sow does. Absolutely. So I'm from Berkeley, California, born and raised. I did my undergrad at Pitzer and then worked for a while in the healthcare sector focused on health inequities. I decided to get my master's at the University of Sussex in Brighton, England in environment development and policy. So that's quite related to my undergrad, which I did in environmental analysis with a focus on African studies. My big focus has really been environmental justice and and meeting inequities where they're at and exposing them for what they are. And so in 2020, I came across Andy, and that's the CEO of As You Sow, if if you're not aware. Uh, He's a wonderful man, and he has such conviction about ESG issues. And this was right around the time of George Floyd's murder. And he started seeing all these corporate statements coming in. And knew that As You Sow, which focuses on holding companies accountable for their actions, really needed to step in and take initiative here. So he started the Racial Justice Initiative, brought me on board, and the rest is history. Oh, tell, well, tell us a little bit about, you know, a little broader about what As You Sow's mission is, and then we'll get into the report we want to talk about. Yeah. So As You Sow's mission is shareholder advocacy. Uh, our focus is creating ESG data been around for 30 years, based in Northern California. And we use our leverage as shareholders to really demand that companies change from the inside out and for the better. As you so's focus has been on a variety of environmental issues, focusing on climate change, waste and plastics, and they've recently branched out into the social structures. So looking at workplace equity, racial justice, overpaid CEOs, and the like. And we use our data that we create, so our scorecards, which I'll talk about today, as the backbone of our shareholder engagements. And that's one of the main ways that we pressure companies to change, but we also like to think of it as an educational tool and really helping companies meet their full potential. That's great. I think that sets up things quite nicely. I always ask my guests, and I've warned you in advance that I'm going to do this with you as well. Uh, you know, is there one number or fact that kind of helps reflect, kind of frames the conversation for what we're going to talk about that people should know about about this issue? One of the facts is that everyone is on a different path on this racial justice and DEI journey, right. uh, whether it's personally or as a corporation. And what As You So is here to do is to help you on that journey. And that is the fact that I love sharing over and over again, because I feel like people can't hear it enough that we are here to help. 
And our tools are here to educate and provide guidelines and metrics to do that. Yeah, I've I've availed myself of the information on your website tonight, and and at the end when we when we give people our the homework, we'll tell them to go there among other places. But yeah, I I would tell people to look at the good work as you so have been doing. I tweeted and posted on LinkedIn about a different ESG report you guys did a couple of weeks ago. I find some good information there, so I tell people to to go there as well. But give us a little bit more background on you know, we're still kind of at the broad you know scene setting level before we get into the details. But uh, you know where we've been, where we are now, and where we're going in the racial social justice initiatives in the U.S., but more broadly as well. So in the U.S., it was not uncommon prior to 2020 for companies to not talk about issues of race, for this to be something that is a behind closed doors conversation, if you will, and for companies to not disclose any transparent metrics around DEI. And so what we saw in 2020 with George Floyd's murder and the statements that so many companies made about internal achieving internal equity and how that would affect the external actions of racial justice, um, we really started seeing more transparency and more disclosure. So now in 2022, going into a corporate conversation looks extremely different when I ask about their hiring, retention, and promotion rates, when they're telling me about all the great work that they're doing behind the scenes on community engagement. This is now one of the top corporate conversations that's being had in America and abroad. And hopefully, uh, we have confidence that, as you saw, that that will only continue to grow and expand into issues such as environmental justice. Mm-hmm. Well, the report that we're going to talk about today in our conversation may lead us more broadly than this, but you guys put out you know, a racial justice report looking at the Russell, two, uh, Russell 1000 last year. And it goes into great detail about you know, leaders and laggards uh, in each industry, the methodology you guys do for, for scoring companies. And I think it's great. It's not just the talk, but you make sure people walk the walk. So tell us a little bit about those findings and you know, deeper dive into the methodology and, and how things are weighted and, and how people can use this information. Yeah. So our racial justice scorecard looks at 26 key performance indicators. Uh, It's separated into seven pillars. In the first three pillars, we look at statement language, looking at that initial statement that the company made post-George Floyd's murder, and really looking at how they're talking about these issues. And then we started looking at corporate DEI practices, so internal and external policies. What are they doing internally? Do they have a DEI department? If so, who leads it? And what are they doing externally? How are they showing up for local communities? Have they donated to racial justice organizations? And recently, as of August of 2021, we released an environmental justice component. That's Pillar 7. And it looks at the historic record that a company has on environmental justice issues. And if they made an acknowledgement of the environmental justice movement in relation to their business practices. Talk a little bit about a little bit more about environmental justice and what that means, because that was something people hear about, but don't really know what what's what's behind that. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. So environmental justice, as as you saw, is using it is a framework to view these issues and to view and build on racial equity. So it is long known that communities of color are adversely affected by environmental violations and discrimination. 
and that's in wastewater, that's in building city codes, it's, it's built into our society. So the environmental justice framework seeks to bring that out and put that blame back on the perpetrators rather than the communities that are fighting for equal access to clean and fair environments. And our scorecard uses that type of framework to bring that conversation into the corporate boardroom and to say, have you examined your policies and practices in relation to this? And have you looked at the adverse outcomes that you may be causing? Yeah, walking through y'all's scorecard, uh, I was looking through and going down and seeing, you know, what is everything weighted? You know, there's, there's, I'm sorry, you said 36, is it 36 different? 26 KPIs in in the racial <laughs> 26 different KPIs. I'm I'm, add, I'm adding more KPIs than there actually was in there. 26 KPIs, but the, I re, I recall that the the highest weighted ones are promotion, recruitment, and retention. And you think about you know this conversation is different in every country, of course, and you know we have people all over the world listening to this, but it's the same similar. It's a similar conversation. And in the United States, for example, you know what public companies are. Well, the only thing they're really required to disclose around the workforce is the number of employees. And so this goes, you know, much farther into that. And we can talk about, you know, e- the EEO one data that companies have to file, but with the government, but don't have to disclose, you know, through SEC filings. But that's something I wanted to highlight for people is to what I hope they walk through the scorecard and see how robust it is, you know, only 26, not 36, uh, different, different categories, but that's, light years more than companies are required to disclose now. So I think it does a great job of scoring. And could you talk a little bit about just the different weightings for things and the rationale behind? I think, you know, it's great that the promotion, recruitment and promotion are weighted to where together they're over a third of of the company's score. And that really gets into what is the company doing, not just what are they, what do they say? Yes. So our scoring system is, 20% of the company's overall score goes to their statement language. And then 80% is that that corporate policies and practices, those external actions. And that really helps when we're talking to companies because it's not only what you've done on the past, not only that statement made almost two years ago, it's how are you following that up? I'd like to mention that we do have a workplace equity scorecard as well which is, has been made in conjunction with our racial justice scorecard. It's led by Meredith Benton, also a fantastic resource that I would highly encourage your listeners to check out. And it tracks and monitors corporate progress for the Russell 1000 on simply DEI and gender issues. So that is a disclosure scorecard purely focused on, did a company disclose this metric? Yes or no. And it's a, it's a very strict grading, but it really demands that companies are showing up on these issues and being transparent. And it's something that funnels into the racial justice scorecard. So we both use that data to file our shareholder resolutions to hold companies accountable. Great. Moving on to the data, the data behind you know the scorecards. You know, we hear, and this is a conversation on this podcast and elsewhere in the ESG world and the sustainability world, we hear a lot about. You know, we hear a lot about e-information, especially with climate and natural capital issues being atop of people's mind, of course, governance. But the S data is often lacking in, in a lot of spaces. Can you talk about the data investors need, what they are and aren't getting, and how you guys go about getting that data? 
Mm-hmm. So we really believe what investors need to see is that hiring retention and promotion rates, that internal DEI data and disclosure, right. uh, EO1 disclosure. We need to see this as a broad metric across the board of the Russell 1000. It's something that investors historically haven't gotten. Companies have been very tight-lipped about it. And now going into the shareholder season, as I was saying earlier, we're starting to see more companies know that this is coming down the pipeline and they're getting ready. They're saying, what can we internally prepare for disclosure? Let's start doing it. Let's get ahead of the pack. And our data, both the racial justice scorecard and the workplace equity scorecard really shows the tremendous growth in the past two years of companies going from no disclosure to some disclosure. And we hope in the next two to five years, we'll start seeing much more disclosure across the board. And and at that time, we'll be able to track exactly how that disclosure is influencing company behavior. Yeah. And the EEO1 data you're talking about, uh, for those who, who don't know, it's the equal opportunity. Uh, what is it? Equal? Now, now I, I'm sorry. Yeah. Equal opportunity employment. 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 Uh, commission. And that's, you know, all companies, I think it's public companies over a hundred or companies, any company over a hundred employees has to file that with the government, but they don't have to file it. If they're, you know, if, if they're a public company, they don't have to file it. And investors have been asking for years. Well, that makes no sense. You know, just mm-hmm. the government has this information. Can I have this information? And you're right. Uh, you know, in researching for this podcast, I've, I've seen a lot of the growth that has been coming in the last two years and that's heartening, but it's still relatively low from where it's been. So the trend is, is, is in the, in a good, is going in the right way, but we'll have to check back and see if that's something that, that continues. Can you give us, you know, in the research you've done, can you give us some examples of, of companies and industry industries that tend to be doing well and what are some best practices from those companies? We're seeing public facing companies doing quite well. So consumer discretionary, consumer staples sectors, big name companies that you've obviously heard of. So the apples of the world that did make very large statements, but now people are looking under the hood and finding some some concerning elements and wanting more information. Uh, so we are seeing companies that don't engage with the public much or, or that aren't household names, don't disclose, probably didn't make a racial justice statement in 2020. And, and while they may be doing DEI work internally, they do not feel the need to publish that work externally. And that's really where we're taking that conversation now is engaging with those companies that most people haven't heard of and saying simply because people don't know about you doesn't mean that the work that you're doing doesn't matter. It still has a ripple effects and we still need to see exactly what you're doing behind the scenes. And finally, before we get into giving people a little, a little bit of homework, you know, this information I think is, is, is vital for investors to have a better understanding of the companies that they invest in, uh, a better understanding of the society that they live in, but also Finally, what can investors do to address the issues and equities you found in, in your report? And we'll get into this a little bit when we're talking about some research and, and you know what, what are we reading and, and homework for people. But you know, people who are looking at this information say, okay, I have this information. Now, how can I improve this situation in the DEI space in racial equity and social justice? They can invest responsibly. Using as you so tools are a great place to start. So educating yourself on which companies are being proactive, 
on issues of racial justice, DEI, climate change, and the like, and which are not. As much information as you have is, is better. And, and we really want to encourage all stakeholders, consumers included, to put your money where your mouth is. So if you, if you care about these social issues, then support companies that care about them as well. And it will have a dramatic influence down the line. I think that that's well said, and I think y'all's reports and the work you're doing will help investors do that. You know, mm -hmm. we need more tools as investors. We need the data and the tools behind them so we can understand company X is doing well, company Y isn't, this sector is doing well, this this sector isn't. So we as investors can engage with those companies and, and hopefully, you know, up their game in, in these areas. I'll ask you, I'll give you a, a little bit of time to think, but I'm, I'm going to ask you what... Uh, what you think people should be reading, but I'll, I'll go first because this is, you know, the, the murder of George, George Floyd two years ago really concentrated people's minds about this issue. And, and Brianna Taylor and Eamon Arbery and others, you know, are on that list as well of in this area. And it, it made me think, you know, I don't know nearly enough on these issues. So I went, you know, to try to, to try to read as much as I could. And I realized that, you know, I would try to consider myself a pretty well-educated person. But I realized there were still large gaps in not understanding you know, how we got here uh, as a country and the issue of race in America. And it's one people don't like thinking about, talking about, but you really can't avoid thinking and talking about it. And not doing so is just counterproductive mm -hmm. in the long run. So I'm going to just highlight a couple of things that I, a couple of resources and books, things that I found useful. And I encourage people, the list that I'm going to give is just a very small part of that to go out and educate yourself on these issues, to understand where we came from, where we are, and why we're here, and how we can improve you know, where things are. So the books I'm going to talk about was, uh, the first I read was A Half Has Never Been Told by uh, Edward Baptiste. And it gives a great history of how America, it's, it's America and the slave economy, slavery economy, and how that helped America grow into a power, and an economic power, and then a superpower. And think about, step back and think about if you were a company and you had, and your, and your biggest cost of labor was free, you know, what could you do? And that's where we were in the 17th century, 18th century as a, as a country. And that's how America became a leader in cotton production and sugar production and tobacco production and many more areas. And if you stop and think about it, you know, the, a lot of the, the things we enjoy today are built on that foundation. And we can't dismiss that and can't just wish it away, but we should know that and know our history. That's a great, so that's one great resources, one great resource. Uh, another was uh, The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein. And this gets into a lot of, especially in the Jim Crow era after Reconstruction, uh, laws that were passed, not just in the South, but all over the country, getting into everything from voting to redlining in districts or in, in, in neighborhoods. And that gets into uh, the issue of you know, wealth creation in America. You know, the biggest two, issue, the biggest two ways wealth has been created in America over the past century or two is inheritance and in people's houses. And for so long, even after you know, one, of the, one of the largest things that came out of the reforms of the Great Depression was the creation, the creation of the Federal, Federal Housing Authority that was revolutionary at the time. And it was the government backing, you know, 20% of people's down payments on housing, houses and, and backing people building wealth in their house. 
but that wasn't afford- afforded to African Americans. You know, they weren't allowed to participate in that. And even the instructions of the FHA at the time, you know, created these redlined districts that uh, banks weren't allowed to loan to, which became ghettos, you know, down the road. Uh, and then also the color of money, and that's by Mirsa Bonadaran. I hope I'm not butchering her name. And that was similar, uh, the, you know, the color of law was about the law, the color of money was banks and, and uh, how, you know, black people were shut out of the banking system in the United States for, you know, for decade, for, you know, over a century and how they tried to get around that and build their own banks and how that succeeded and failed. And then the last one I'll leave you, I'll leave people with is uh, the new Jim Crow mass incarceration in the age of colorblindness that came out about 10 years ago by Michelle Alexander. And it really gets into how, and it's, it's interesting, this echoes the reconstruction period in American history where slavery was abolished and there was a short glimpse of uh, a lot of African-Americans joining in societies, joining uh, in legislatures. And of course, this was um, anathema to a lot of the folks in the South at the time. And a lot of laws were passed to where forced labor from, from prisons was replaced slave labor that had gone away. And at any one time, in one place, up to a quarter or a third of black men in, in those regions were uh, imprisoned for trivial things. And then that they could be used as labor. And so the, this book talks about you know, the, the current state of mass incarceration, how that is an extension kind of the Jim Crow era. After the civil rights progress of the 60s, we still have those issues and those problems. And you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a white man in America, so I'm, I don't understand what it means to, you know, my, my parents have never had to, have, had to have the conversation of driving while black. You know, I didn't know a lot of my history until I went back and looked at these things. I didn't know what the Tulsa massacre of 1921 was until a couple of years ago, and I'm in my late 40s. And so, you know, I don't want to preach to people. I don't like being preached to, so I don't like doing that to others. But I want people to be educated about, you know, where we are and how we got here. And I think those are some resources, and like I said, there's many more, to help understand kind of where we are and to see with clear eyes how we got to where we are. You listed listed some wonderful titles, and, and thank you for sharing One of my favorite environmental justice and injustice authors is Dorcia Taylor. She is currently a professor at Yale. Uh, She's a Black woman that has been in this space for decades, and she has some really revolutionary things to say about how America got to the space of mass environmental injustice and what we can do to get out of it. So I would highly suggest that your listeners check her work out. Another great resource is US SIF, US SIF. Right. And they have a wonderful toolkit online that talks about a variety of racial justice issues and ways to resolve them in your personal life and in your work life. So check it out. That's great. I had forgotten about that one. I've, I've used that. That is, that is a great resource. I'm glad you like it. <laughs> I was on, on the, the committee that helped make it. So I, I oh, hope I it didn't was know useful. That. Great. <laughs> but you, you've added a book to my, my ever extended night table that's, that's getting deeper and deeper. <laughs> uh, but I will, I will get to them all eventually. That's good. 
Well, thank you, Olivia, for, for taking the time to talk to us. I hope this has been edifying for our listeners, and uh, we hope to see you soon. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Take care. Thank you.